You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. We thought we would just pretend like they are the kings and queens of Narnia and we'd set up the thrones and have them come and take their place. So, God bless you. Merry Christmas, everybody. Man, I thought I originally thought we'd probably all have microphones, and now that I've got David in front of an audience with no microphone, I feel like I should just roast him right now because he because <laughs> he doesn't have a mic to uh, to come back. But I'll I'll spare David that. I'll get it soon. Even though I have plenty of material that I could work with. In 1921, oh, just kidding. In 1982, the year before I was born. Dr. Shin Miller observed seven brown, oval-shaped lotus seeds, each about the size of a large marble. And that came from the Beijing Institute of Botany. These seeds came from a dry lake bed that had once been the site of a lotus lake. Then one year later, in 1983, Dr. Shin Miller filed through the hard shells of the four seeds, planted them in ideal conditions, and watched three of those four seeds sprout. Then using carbon dating to establish their ages, she discovered that the oldest seed was 1,288 years old. Another was 684 years old. And the third that sprouted was 755 years old. These seeds had literally been dormant for over 600 years. And then in four days after being nurtured and planted and in ideal conditions had started to come to life. And then in 1921, there was a 14-acre plot of land that was completely eradicated of this one specific kind of plant. And for the next 20 years, not a single one of those plants grew in that field. Um, And then in 1941, 20 years later, researchers discovered over 11,000 new seedlings of that exact same plant growing all over those 14 acres. So the seeds of those plants had literally been laying dormant in the ground for 20 years before they sprung to life. Now every seed by its God's given nature wants to grow into a plant. That's its desire is to be fruitful and multiply like everything that God has spoken over. But in order for a seed to turn into a plant, it not only needs to survive, it needs to be nurtured, to thrive. In fact, many plants will produce seeds that will fall into the ground and lay dormant for months, or in these examples, 20 years, or even 1,200 years, before they grow into a plant. And until the conditions are just right for that particular seed to come to life. Now, why am I talking about seeds this morning in church? You're probably wondering that. I might be wondering that myself (laughs) at this point. Um... I truly believe that we all have seeds inside of us that God has planted, very unique seeds that will only grow when the conditions are perfect for that specific seed. And now I'm preaching to myself here, um, especially for the last year, I would say, um, a lot of my prayers have been praying for uh, my conditions to change, for my circumstances to change. Um, And I'm not saying to not pray that circumstances change because I think we all have circumstances that we would like to change in our lives. Um, But I believe that God is inviting us 
to not just pray for our circumstances to change, but for us to recognize the season that we're in and to realize that there's probably seeds that God has planted in us right now that are perfectly prepared to grow and may only grow in the particular season that we're in right now. And Jesus, he is the good gardener, and I believe that he's inviting us all to spend time with him to discover what are certain circumstances now that might just be the perfect greenhouse for that seed to come to life and bear much fruit in our life now and later in life. So I just wanted to invite everybody today um, to just spend some time with God, to invite the Holy Spirit, to ask Him um, to identify what seeds are in your life right now that can grow and may only specifically grow in this season right now, and then ask him to, uh, to nurture those and to not necessarily try to just want to escape the conditions that you're in now, but to realize that those conditions might be the unique conditions for that seed to start growing. So that's all I got. Hard act to follow, and mine's much different. Um, Okay, so um, what I want to talk a little bit about today is something that Chris and I actually discovered um, a few years into our marriage and has just been really beneficial, but I think is helpful in any close relationship that you have in your life, whether that's a spouse, coworker, friend, parent to child. Um, and I think a lot of the times, um, especially in the Christian world, there's a lot of focus on forgiveness, forgiving other people, which is obviously really important. Um, but I don't think it's talked about much is when we're the ones that did the hurt and we're the ones that need the forgiving. Um, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That starts with us confessing. Um, and even in Matthew 5, um, Jesus talks about before making a sacrifice, um, if you've got someone that you know has something against you, go to them first and be reconciled together. It's about that relationship. Um, and so I think so often when we think of, of that um, confessing or apologizing, we're doing it between us and the Lord. Um, but I think there's a lot of healing that comes when we're actually going to a person um, with that apologetic heart. And oftentimes, I think when we've done something wrong, um, we feel the need to apologize because we feel bad, we need to get it off our chest, you know, we need to check the box, well, I apologized. Um, but how many of you have been on that receiving end of apology and when they're done, you just kind of feel like, well, that wasn't very sincere. I don't really feel like, you know, um, and so I feel like um, that can happen a lot, but, um, sorry, get back to my notes here, um, but really what an apology is meant to be about is it's not about us, it's about the relationship that we're trying to repair, because when you do something that hurts someone, you're creating this rift in the relationship, and it can no longer grow until that's removed, um, and so... 
a lot of you are probably familiar with the five love languages, um, that there's five different ways that people best receive love. There's actually, um, it's probably lesser known, so I'm talking about it today, um, five languages of apology, that there are ways um, that someone can better receive an apology from somebody. Um, and so, yeah, Chris and I discovered this, um, and it's been helpful because, um, yeah. I have to apologize a lot. <laughs> Um, but yeah. the best way, so I thought that I could um, kind of demonstrate what these five are, is to give you guys a scenario, um, paint you guys a picture. So I want you all to imagine um, that someone close in your life, whether that's your spouse, coworker, friend, somebody you're close with, um, borrows your car for the weekend. You let them borrow your car, and they take it for a fun weekend away. Um, it's now Monday morning, and you're headed to work, school. You've got a big presentation and you get in your car and your gas light is on and you have no gas and you know that you're gonna have to stop to get gas before you reach your destination and it's going to make you late for your big presentation so imagine those feelings kind of stirring up in you okay so you've now gone through your day you get home or to wherever and you confront this person that left your gas tank empty okay and you mad okay so imagine that, okay, pick that person in mind. Okay, so now pretend that I am that person because I'm going to now apologize to you for the wrong that I just did. So you've come at me with, I can't believe you left my gas tank empty. It made me late. I had this big presentation. Okay, so I'm going to go through five scenarios. So some of these may hit home to you. I'm going to give you one and kind of by a raise of hands, let me know if this felt sincere to you. This applies to you guys too. Okay, all right. So here, apology number one. I know that by me not getting gas today caused you to be late, and for that, I'm really sorry. Can you forgive me? All right, show of hands. Does that feel sincere to anybody? Okay, a couple people. All right. Scenario number two. I'm so sorry that I left your gas tank empty making you late. I can only imagine how angry you must have been, and I'm sorry I put you in that situation because of my lack of responsibility. All right, raise your hand, is that, okay, a couple other people that one hits, okay, yep. All right, number three. I'm sorry I didn't fill up your gas tank. I could try to make an excuse, but I realize now I was being selfish. I really messed up, and I know that's my fault. All right, a couple people like that one, okay. Next one. I'm so sorry. I know you already had to get gas this morning, but I'd like to pay for the fill-up, and I'd like to take you out to dinner to make up for it. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> All right, yep. All right, and then the last one. I'm sorry I left your gas tank empty. Next time I borrow your car, I'll be sure to put gas in, the, put gas in it so this doesn't happen again. All right, a little bit? Okay, all right. So those are, so what I actually covered was the five languages of apology. So that first one, um, when I said, um, I know it made you late, um, can you forgive me? So that first one is requesting forgiveness. There's, so for those of you that felt good with that one, some of you actually need the other person to say the words, can you forgive me? It's kind of putting the power back in that person's hands to make the decision to forgive you. Um, and it's not, with this one, it's not demanding forgiveness. You have to forgive me because essentially forgiveness is a gift. And of course a gift demanded is no longer a gift. Um, 
But so, yeah, uh, requesting uh, forgiveness. Um, so that's the one. So that first one that felt good people, you may just actually need to hear the words. Like someone may have apologized you and all this, and they say all these things, and you just get done. They're like, they never asked me to forgive them. Like that's you saying, that's your apology language. You need to hear the will you forgive me. All right, the second one um, was the, I'm sorry I left your gas tank empty making you late. I can only imagine how angry you must have been. I'm sorry I put you in that situation because of my lack of responsibility. This one is called expressing regret. Um, this is really the emotional aspect of apologizing. Um, you're expressing um, kind of your own sense of guilt and pain and really understanding the perspective of the other person. Um, this, this one is actually kind of where I fall. I used to say with Chris, I'm like, I just need you to understand why you did what you did. Like, do you understand what you're apologizing for? Um, so people that uh, need, yeah, you to really just um, put yourself in their shoes and understand not just I'm sorry, but like what is it about what you did that made it so hurtful? Um, the third one, um, I'm sorry I didn't fill up your gas tank. I could try to make an excuse, but I realized that was selfish. I really messed up and I know that's my fault. This third one is accepting responsibility. These people need to hear that I was wrong. And I think this one maybe is, at least for me, maybe the hardest one to do because I think it kind of goes against human nature to say I was wrong. I think that's, we always want to defend ourselves and oh, I, I didn't fill up the gas tank because I was running late and I knew you wanted me home for dinner and you know, you're trying to make excuses. But um, what the person really needs to just hear is accepting that fault of I'm sorry, I was wrong in this. Um, that fourth one about a, paying for the gas and um, then taking them out to dinner. This one's called uh, making restitution. This is what dear husband needs to hear. How can I make it right? People who speak this language, they feel like the hurt, the wrong has already been done. Saying I'm sorry doesn't change it. What are you going to do to make up for it, basically? Um, and in my case, a good meal always usually solves, <laughs> solves that problem. Um, and then uh, the fifth one of um, next time I borrow your car, I'll make sure I put gas in this so it doesn't happen again. This fifth, fifth language is genuine repentance and showing that you want to change. Some people, you know, you have that apology and then you just feel like they're just going to do it again. Like you've done this before. They need to hear and see even. Some may require like a plan like, I've done this before, like I want to change. How can I show you? Let's make a plan together or what action steps can I do um, so you can see um, that I truly want to change. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of a, a quick scenario of the five um, apology languages. Um, and what I really want to do is just encourage you to discover, one, what yours is, but more importantly, what that person, when I was painting that scenario, who that person was. Um, discover what their language is because again like it's all about the relationship it's not about us feeling better oh I, I apologize so I'm good it's really about mending that relationship um, so yeah I just really encourage you guys to discover what that is and begin to learn to speak their apology language because it's honestly really a simple like thing once you learn and I mean you can go years in a relationship either not fully feeling like you're heard because you've been apologizing how you know best but they're not hearing it and can just cause more of these rifts and we can just speak that it's really been you know impactful for us and um, really lessons on um, 
how we come back together after. And again, obviously some, some hurts are deeper than others and just because you speak their language doesn't mean it's an immediate, you know, obviously there's ranges, ranges of hurts. But I think if you really um, kind of start to incorporate this, if you've done the love languages and kind of realize the impact that can have this also kind of on that other side um, can really be impactful as well. And if you want to find out more, uh, fivelovelanguages.com has even a quiz you can take and more resources. There's a book as well. So, All right. Um, I am going to talk about Christmas. <laughs> um, it, this actually kind of turned out a little bit longer than I had originally anticipated, but David's under the weather, so I don't think he's going to quite have the lung capacity of normal. So I think it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know about you guys, but this time of year, um, I think one of the biggest like questions that gets raised, the biggest thing that you hear um, is, are you ready for Christmas? And you know, being in the healthcare profession where I have multiple, you know, 10 to 15 patients a day, and sometimes have the same conversations 10 to 15 times a day, um, all month. Are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? And you know, of course, what that means is: Are the decorations up? The tree? Um, have you bought all your gifts and wrapped them? Made travel plans, party plans, um, cookies baked, and all of that kind of stuff. And I just kept getting this sense this year that I was supposed to kind of look into what ready looked like during the first Christmas. And um, we had gone to church um, at my parents' church a couple weeks ago, and the pastor had brought up that between the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi and the first book in the New Testament, the, arri uh, the arrival of John the Baptist, there were 400 silent years um, where nobody had, heard from, nobody had heard from God. There was no new prophecy and revelation, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of got to thinking, like, okay, well, I don't think anybody was actually really ready for anything, probably. Um, because it had been generations um, since they had been expecting anything. Um, and so kind of in my studying, um, I decided it's more important to be ready to receive Christmas um, than it is to be prepared for its arrival. Um, so in that first Christmas, you kind of have four major players, and you all know them. You have Zachariah and Elizabeth, you have Mary and Joseph, you have the shepherds, and you have the wise men. So real quick, I want to go through all these four groups of people and just kind of share with you the lessons that I learned about how each of them received Christmas differently um, and what we can learn from that. Um, so Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, of course we know they were barren and they were old. And... Um, Zechariah goes into the temple to pray, and an angel shows up. And an angel hadn't showed up for 400 years or more. And so, um, even as a priest, it wasn't something that he was expecting. And so, he w it says he was shaken and he was overwhelmed with fear. And we learn that he didn't believe what the angel had told him, which is why he then couldn't speak and, um, until John was born. And so, you know, he had nine, ten months to kind of wrestle with, with this and his 
I'm sure his lack of belief when the angel had come to him. Um, But then after John was born, he gave this prophecy. Oops. And um, he, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And this is Luke 1, 68-79. And I just want you to hear some of the references to how long that they had been waiting for this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So I think what we learn from, or what I learned from Zachariah and Elizabeth is to continue to believe in God's plan even if it takes longer than you expect. Hold on to faith and continue to believe. Um, Mary and Joseph, we know the story there. Um, Young, engaged, you know, so excited, happy to start their lives together. And angels show up again. And it says Mary was confused and disturbed. Um, Joseph was planning on quietly breaking off the engagement. Um, They were not prepared or ready for this, but um, Mary's response to the angel was, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then after Joseph sees the angel in a dream, he married Mary, even though he knew the shame it would probably cause and all of the sneers and whispering and everything that would happen around town. Um, and so in receiving Christmas, I think Mary and Joseph teach us to say yes, even when it's hard. Um, and that can be really tough. <laughs> um, but to say yes, even though the path, doesn't, the path looks messy, Um, And even though you know it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. Um, Moving on to the shepherds. Um, They were out in the fields just tending their sheep, you know, doing their, you know, little shepherd job. Um, Not many people thought of the shepherds anyways, so, you know, they're just kind of doing their own thing. And again, angels show up and they're terrified. And, um, but of course, you know, the angels sing to them and all this kind of stuff. And then um, the shepherds say, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. And as I was reading this, this Christmas, it's, it's not something that I ever kind of realized before, is that you have these shepherds who have their flock. And I just got to thinking about 
um, the parable of the sheep and how Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. And the first example we have of this in the Bible is the shepherds leaving their flock to go find the one, like the lamb. And I was just like, that's so cool. Um, that that is the, the, that first example that we have physically of, of that. Um, and then after they go and they meet Jesus, um, they went and told everyone um, their story. And it says that everyone um, was astonished by it and amazed by it. Um, and so from the shepherds, we learn in receiving Christmas to go. And not just to go, but to tell your story to anyone who will listen to it. Um, that way you can share this gift that you have received. And finally, the wise men, um, who were arguably the most prepared for um, the arrival of Jesus. They saw the star, they studied it, um, they looked up prophecy, they sought out um, counsel from other knowledgeable people, um, they traveled a long distance, they brought gifts. Um, you know, by our standards, they were prepared. They had a plan, they were going to see, um, see the king, and they were going to go back and they were going to tell Herod and they were going to share what they had found. Um, and so they go and they, they bring gifts. And then they bow down and they worship Jesus. Um, but then what happens that's interesting is all of these other groups of people, angels came to them first. The wise men, it's different. The wise men and all of their planning and all of their worldly astrological preparations came to Jesus and found Jesus. And then after, not till after they met Jesus, did the angels come to them in a dream and said, don't go back to Herod, go home a different way. Herod's going to kill the kid. Um, and so what the wise men teach us is when you receive Christmas, when you receive Jesus, be prepared for your plans to change. Because they will. Um, it might not be, it could just be travel plans change, you know? could be as simple as that. <laughs> um, it could be something bigger. Um, but be prepared and open for some of your plans to change. Um, so, um, as the physical signs of Christmas start to fade away as we undeck the halls and family goes home and things return to your normal everyday look and feel, um, I would encourage you to believe in God's plan no matter the timing. Say yes, even when it's hard. Don't forget to tell your story and be open and willing for your plans to change. Stay open to receiving Christmas each and every day. Very nice. <clears throat> I apologize about my voice. Well, I think that's about all of our time. Uh, so outside of Ohio State losing last night, how is everybody? Chuck, you doing okay? You alive over there? Yeah, sorry. Um, 
I didn't really prepare anything, so I apologize. Uh, I haven't been feeling great, and, and last night God said, you know, that's, that's okay, because you could just say a few things at the end and just tell a very, very, very simple story. But to tell that story, I need two models. And I can't model myself, and there's three people up here, so I have to choose two. Uh, Chris, just stay there, ladies, if you can help me out. <laughs> Please get my favorite painting, painted in 1945 by my great-great-uncle Jim, who was a professional painter and traveled the whole world in his whole life. He was just a painter. And uh, my dad promised me that when Tess and I, when, whenever I got my first house, our first house, that he would let me choose any painting that he has of my Uncle Jim's, and, uh, and we could put it up in our house. And uh, I don't want to, like, you know, go around. And, uh, I love this painting. I've talked about it throughout my life. I remember um, back in acting classes in San Diego, we'd have to talk, one time he asked us, when you get on stage, talk about your favorite painting. And I talked about this painting when I was tw 22. I love so I'm, I'm 35 now, and the entire, my entire life looking at this painting, so this is in La Malle Bay in Quebec. And Quebec City was founded by Samuel de Champlain in, uh, I forget if it was 15 or, I think 1608. And from France, and his men came in and tried to dock in this bay, which is about 15 minutes outside Quebec City. And as you see, they're building a boat right there. It's low tide, it's very, very shallow. And Champlain named it Lamal, which means the bad, the bad bay, meaning you can't dock ships there. Well, in 1945, um, my uncle Jim, great, great uncle Jim, uh, was living in Montreal, traveled to Quebec City, and sat down and just watch these men build this ark, build this boat, when low tide, um, bad for docking boats, but perfect for building boats. And I always said, this is my favorite painting in the world. One, it's because my Uncle Jim painted it. And two, because there's just something in me that I've always believed that something, if you're gonna be something great, it's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take a long, long, long time. Um, so probably about, what, six, six months ago, maybe? Maybe five or six months ago, I said, you know what? I'm a little OCD. I, I can go down rabbit holes. And I said, okay, I want to clean this painting, but I don't feel like paying $1,000 at the art gallery. So I started researching what is the best way to clean paintings. And I was thinking, well, probably water. And then you just, you know, like, no, that's the worst thing you could do. It turns out, and not to be gross, and I do apologize, that, that spit or saliva uh, multi-million dollar paintings have been cleaned with saliva on a Q-tip. That's not the only way to clean paintings, but it's, it's a valid way. So I said, okay, it's the safest way. So I spent six hours on a Sunday, took probably about 50 to 60 Q-tips, dabbed it on my tongue, and went from here all the way over to there, over. I mean, it took six hours. Little OCD. Go down a rabbit hole or two. And I realized something. Never in my life did I realize that these people were talking to each other. And I've seen this painting since it's been in my dad's house since I was born. There's a guy up there on the boat talking to this guy down there. And I thought to myself, I mean, it just, it just shocked me that all it needed to be was cleaned. 
and the painting is completely different. My favorite painting wasn't even the exact painting that I thought it was. And then I started thinking, how many of us, when we think about ourselves, talk about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, how we describe ourselves, it comes from our own perspective. And maybe our perspective is a little different because maybe in childhood something happened or maybe when you were 15 something happened or maybe somebody lied to you and you believed it and maybe something's going on in your life that you describe yourself in a way that isn't even true. And then I started thinking, wow, isn't that a great example? Just a small little example in my life of many, but one example of my favorite painting of Uncle, Uncle, great, great Uncle Jim's. That it taught me that the only way I'm ever gonna know who I truly am is if I don't see things through my own perspective, but I see things through God's perspective and what he says about me. Imagine Ted, Jim, and somebody coming up and saying, oh, hello, painting. Who are you? Like, you have to go to the creator to know who you are. Otherwise, you're, you don't know who you are. So is anybody like big on New Year's and New Year's resolutions and anybody big on that? The starting of January 1, no, Jim, no? Okay, sorry. Sorry. And I was going to bed last night, and then the Holy Spirit spoke to me over here, and you know, um, what is it, Revelation 21.5, and I think Rick was talking about it, and then Chris started talking about it, and he said, you know, I am making all things new. So what is it in our lives that we just need to dust off a little bit, or the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, is like coming into your heart right now and just saying, something new is going to happen in 2020. Something new, a new relationship, restoration of an old relationship, forgiveness. Seeing things from a different perspective, seeing things from the Father's perspective of who you actually are. Hmm. So that's basically about all I had. I just wanted to show off my, uh, my painting. And I wanted to encourage us... Um, that it doesn't matter where you've come from, or what you've done. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is who God says you are and he loves you, he's making things new, and this is a new year, and I wanna encourage you and challenge you to pray right now, oh, what is God dusting off? What are things that have been dormant and dead for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, lies you've been believing that are changing right now and are changing in this new year? Is that okay if I pray real quick? Mm. Holy Spirit, speak through the cold. My cold. Come Jesus, come Holy Spirit. Thank you for this day. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for my best friends up here on the stage and my wife. Holy Spirit, come and just speak into our hearts, speak into our lives. Make things new. You are making everything new. And in this new year, protect our families protect our loved ones, protect our friends. Go before us in this new year, Holy Spirit, and speak of your greatness and open doors that maybe we've never even seen or windows that we've never even thought of. New relationships that we never thought would come into our lives, but by you and your love and your blessings, you are bringing them into our paths. Hmm. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, just, just dust off our paintings of our heart. Bring forth what, what is new in Jesus' name.
speak to us right now about what you're talking about in our own lives that is going to happen, that is going to be new in this year right now today. For those of us that don't know we're forgiven, Lord Jesus, speak into our hearts, we are forgiven. You love us. You created us in your image. We screwed up and Jesus saved us. And he restored us and he brought us back to our original identity in Jesus' name. That when you see us, you don't see us how we see ourselves, but you see us as perfected through love by the blood of Jesus. And we are so entwined with him that we are, you see us as him. We're together. There's no separation. Hmm. And just thank you for your love. Thank you for this church. Thank you for everyone in this church today. Bless their lives. Bless this new year. And let us learn to identify ourselves how you see us as perfect through the lens of Jesus Christ. Bring forth what is new in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.